Welcome to Legal Tips, a podcast series from the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section of the American Bar Association, also known as TIPS. As leaders in trial practice and issues of justice involving tort and insurance law, TIPS brings together plaintiffs, defense, corporate, and in-house counsel to tackle issues confronting the legal profession. Legal Tips is designed to present you with a balanced discussion of thought-provoking issues and suggest creative approaches and solutions to problems that arise in the practice of tort and insurance law. This is the second of a two-part program where we take a closer look at lawyers and emergency management. This is Barbara Gislason, today's host from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm the TIPS liaison for the ABA Committee on Disaster Preparedness and Response, and also the TIPS chair-elect for the Intellectual Property Law Committee. The purpose of this program is to help lawyers understand the principles of emergency management better and see what their role would be like as a natural leader at the time of a natural disaster. The people on the line today have been there, and they will be your tour guides for how to think about this problem. With their assistance, we hope that you can imagine yourself problem-solving at a future date and that you take away from this show helpful tools for how to do this. Our guests today are Richard Friedman from the National Strategy Forum, which is a think tank, and Melissa Rubin from the Humane Society of the United States, the largest humane society in the world. Welcome to our listeners. Our first guest will be Richard Friedman. I have been so overwhelmed in preparing for this show to learn more about the quality of our guests. And Richard, one of the things that I just learned about you, and this this because I'm older than maybe some of the guests, was powerful to me in a unique way. I've heard of Radio Free Europe my whole life. I, I was born in 52 when the communist threat was there. And you just told me only a few days ago that you're the United States voice of Radio Free Europe. What does that feel like? Well, I, I do occasional broadcasts for them, and it's a wonderful opportunity to try to convey to our European friends uh, uh, some views, uh, I, and I would say, from the Midwest regarding U.S. national security, U.S. international policy, and the like. It's a wonderful opportunity to reach an audience that ordinarily one would not have a chance to do. Richard, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you back in time into the earlier 1990s and ask you about your role with regard to the American Bar Association National Security Committee. Can you tell me how that started up and what your role was? The uh, Standing Committee on Law and National Security of the American Bar Association has done some pioneering and visionary work in the area of international terrorism. Uh, very briefly, we go back to 1983 when neither national security nor international terrorism was a buzzword. And uh, we've been working that problem now for 25, 28 years, and uh, we've had a pretty good crystal ball. For example, in the year 2000, our committee convened uh, two conferences, one with the Centers for Disease Control how to prepare state emergency health directors to prepare for a catastrophic incident. 
And then again, in the year 2000, our committee held a conference entitled Catastrophic Terrorism, and uh, it was almost eerie. We uh, predicted virtually everything that happened on 9-11, with the exception of the collisions with the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the unfortunate uh, downing of the airliner in Pennsylvania. Your committee, Richard, also has something to, to do with the concept of the need for the Department of Homeland Security. Is that right? Yes. Uh, in the year 2000, we did an analysis of uh, which departments, which agencies in the federal government had uh, jurisdiction over various component parts of an emergency situation. We identified at least 26 different agencies that had some part of the pie, and it was pretty obvious at that time that there was a need to pull all of this together. As a result of this study and analysis, we recommended that the federal government should consider creating a Department of Homeland Security, and of course that occurred four years ago. What has concerned your committee since that department was created? Well, the ongoing problem is to try to balance the issues of national security, which involves very much counterterrorism. And in order to address the issue of counterterrorism, we must recognize that we have to find the bad guys. And in order to find the bad guys, that involves some things that raise uh, inherent issues of civil liberties. For example, wiretapping. That's a way to identify bad guys and their communications. But at the same time, we have to be very, very careful in so doing that we don't go over the line and intrude unnecessarily in the area of civil liberties. So that's one of the basic concerns that we've had as we've been doing this analysis. Richard, when we talked the other day, you told me that your group had come up with a very innovative idea with regard to how to educate, for example, the media on the competing issues of the need for national security. And I think you specifically mentioned the Patriot Act and civil liberties. What was your method to get both points of view out on that subject? Uh, the frustrating part of the work that we do, focusing on national security, is the balance between the need to investigate and balancing that with civil liberties. And what we found is that there was a lot of misinformed, uninformed public opinion, quite justifiably so, about intruding on privacy rights. The Patriot Act was a case in point. There were about 12 difficult provisions and what we decided to do was to try to clear the air, and what we did was to engage experts, civil libertarians, and those who have a responsibility for investigation and uh, issues involving national security counterintelligence. What we did, we gave these good people an opportunity to write essays, 800 to 1,000 words, on each of these issues. We established point counterpoint, and we published this in a book called The Patriot Debates. It was very compelling information because it laid out the arguments and counterarguments, and as a result of that, we sent this along to the members of Congress and other organizations that had raised these concerns, and I think to a very high degree, we allayed 
the concerns based on good information and a rearing point and counterpoint arguments. Now, addressing the continuing work of your committee, one of the things that I understand that you do on an annual basis is you have a program on something really specific. And I understand that prior to Hurricane Katrina, you had one of those kind of programs. Can you talk about that program? Yes. Uh, in, in the July uh, conference that preceded Hurricane Katrina that occurred in the latter part of August, we convened a conference on what to do in the event of a catastrophic uh, incident, whether it's a national disaster or a terrorism attack. And we uh, scoped out the constituent parts of the problem. We anticipated, anticipated virtually everything that occurred in Hurricane Katrina. When we talked yeah. before, Richard, when we talked before, I understood that 90% of all the legal issues that arose in Hurricane Katrina, as well as emergency management issues, were part of what your group addressed only the July before the hurricane. Yeah, that occurred about, oh, less than two months. Uh, We published a report on those issues, and unfortunately, all the things that we had predicted came true. Uh, Regrettably, uh, the report did not get distributed widely enough at the time, and it was not internalized by the people who had these responsibilities. Had this occurred, perhaps a lot of the misery and the difficulties that occurred in the aftermath of Katrina could have been avoided. Richard, one of the reasons that we're doing this show today is because we have the perspective that lawyers are the natural leaders in their community if there is a disaster in the future. Their family will look to them, their friends, their clients, their communities. Is that a priority now for your committee? Very much so. Uh, All lawyers should be very proud of their professions and the work that they do in the community. In a nutshell, lawyers, in my view, are icons. They're members of school boards. They lead charitable and civic organizations. And if there is one group of people in a community that the community would look to for guidance in the event of a catastrophic incident, it would be lawyers. Now, the follow-on to that is that lawyers have to be prepared. They have to understand the kinds of questions that will be thrown at them by the public, by their friends and neighbors, and also they have to be prepared to respond to their private clients' questions as well. Uh, Regrettably, I don't think lawyers, along with the rest of the general public, are by and large well prepared for a catastrophic incident or an emergency, whether it's a natural disaster or a catastrophic terrorism attack. Richard, let's begin with the incident command system. Should lawyers know about that? Not necessarily. I think that that's a level of detail that's not required. My sense, and the guidance that I would provide to lawyers, is that they do minimal preparation that other members of the community should be doing. For example, they ought to have a plan, uh, how they gather their school kids, other members of their family, And this is the lead-in for our other guest, Melissa. Pets are part of our family as well. We also have to recognize that for the first 72 hours in the aftermath of an emergency, we're pretty much on our own. There's not an ability to rapidly mobilize 
uh, first responders to assist us. And then comes the third part, resilience. You have to be able to recognize what disruption has been caused and how to respond to it. Uh, there's no need for a fancy kit. Think about what you would need to do for the first 72 hours. It's uh, a little bit of food, some water, appropriate clothing, a flashlight, first aid, perhaps your uh, medications and the like. And it would take perhaps 30 minutes for each of us to think through that and execute, and we would be at least minimally prepared. Well, that would be for your family. What about for your clients? Well, the clients is a different story, and each client has a different set of issues that would occur in the aftermath of an emergency. And, for example, if your client is a cold storage warehouse and the electricity and power were cut off for an extended period of time, let's say a day or two, what happens to the food in cold storage? It can't, must it be disposed of? What's the contact with the local health authorities? How do you communicate with the, uh, let's say, the supermarkets that you provide food to? Uh, if a client contacts a lawyer in the immediate aftermath of an emergency, a lawyer does not have time to research the issue. My guidance in this respect is that a lawyer should develop a reference book, a desk book, in advance. Secondly, you ought to anticipate the kinds of questions that should be asked. And another important thing would be to, if you're located or employed with a law firm, there should be two or three lawyers within your firm who have spent time thinking through these issues, and they would be the go-to people in the event of an emergency. Is there anything else that you would advise that lawyers start to learn right now? Well, that's basically it. It's so obvious and so simple that if each of us just exercised a bit of prudence, uh, a little bit of thought and logic, uh, the whole community would be much, much better off. Uh, the other tangible thing that a law firm could do and individuals, lo uh, lawyers therein, is to make sure that all lawyers and administrative staff within their respective law firms are prepared. That's very, very simple, and that would be a very good beginning. Thank you so much for your time today, Richard, and I hope you'll stay on the line. Next, I'm going to turn to Melissa Rubin. And when I think of you, Melissa, you are the attorney who one decade before Hurricane Katrina, maybe even earlier than that, were one of the few people in the whole country out on the road who was helping deliver the message that there was a connection between animals and emergency management. I want you to go back to the early days and tell us what the attitude was about animals and, and how you took initial steps to change it. Sure, Barbara. Um, unfortunately, before Katrina, no one was taking the issue of including pets in disaster planning seriously. What happened after Katrina is you saw a lot well, of. Well, I want to take you back. I want you to take you back before Katrina. I, I keep imagining you in small towns all around the country, Melissa, because I know about your slideshow and I know it was unique. And you were consistently modest every time I ask you about the early beginnings. And I'm going to tell you forget the modesty. Tell us what you really did. Sure. I was literally 
beating down the pavement, networking, and outreaching to local communities, to whoever I could speak at, whether it be a fire department, um, if there was a state conference, whatever it was, trying to encourage the general public and emergency management. Emergency management means anyone that is involved and strictly works on disaster work to include pets in their disaster plans. What was their reaction, you know, way back then when you said to include pets in a plan? Did, did they look at you respectfully? Honestly, no. It was more, oh, there's the dog person or the cat person. They didn't understand how important it was. And how did you start to change the point of view of a public who didn't get it? A consistent message and really, really working in the different communities. I would teach people, and then those people would go out and talk, and it was sort of like a big umbrella. And then, of course, once Katrina hit, everyone saw in the media that people will not evacuate without their pets. And it was very important that disaster plans would include pets. I want to take you to immediately after Hurricane Katrina. As I understand it, the Humane Society of the United States got the authority, the contractual authority, to go into Louisiana and effectively be in charge of what was happening on the ground uh, with pets. And as I understand it, you were the very person who was at the front of that. Can you explain what that was like, Melissa? I want to see it. Yeah. Um, it was an overwhelming task. We had never been confronted with such a large, disa- large disaster. And at the beginning of the disaster in particular, there was absolutely no assistance coming in to help the animal issue. So visualize- in, other words, in other words, you mean no government resources? No government resources. Um, and I want you to visualize 110 degrees, hundreds and hundreds of animals needing to be rescued, no crates. No shelter, no shelter for people. We finally found a place that we could locate in, but again, there was no provisions. There were four showers, and there were literally thousands of volunteers coming from all over the country to help rescue pets. And the shelter that we were located in, unfortunately, could only hold about 800 dogs and cats at one time. And literally every day, hundreds and hundreds of pets would come in that had been rescued in very, very serious conditions. So basically, prior to Hurricane Katrina, there were three full-time people at the Humane Society of the United States who specialized in this area, and they did their effort, their best efforts to train people for different skill sets that were needed in the event of a disaster. What kind of skill sets were in place at the time of Katrina, and what have you learned since then about what would really help? Well, what we've learned is that training, as you were just saying, training is very important. If you're going to respond to a disaster, and I'm assuming if a lawyer is listening to this, it is very important if you're a lawyer and you're representing an organization that you make sure that they're going to use volunteers, and those volunteers must be trained ahead of time, and you need to know who they are. It is very difficult in a disaster situation to not to have people just showing up and you need to have an organization planned ahead. Okay, let's say that I've just showed up at a disaster relief place and I don't know anything about dogs. I've never seen a dog before. I've only had cats. What are the legal risks for a volunteer who, who is unfamiliar with that kind of species? From a lawyer. Put on your lawyer head. Yeah. I, yes, there are a lot of risks 
and I often advise organizations and volunteers. There could be dog bites, cat scratches, um, exposure to possible rabies, um, trespass issues. So it's very important to plan ahead. So you need to, as a lawyer, encourage your clients to, one, if you're going to set up a temporary shelter, you should have a contract with whoever you're going to set up in this temporary site with the person that owns the property. You've got to know who your volunteers are because you've got to have them sign indemnification um, provisions so that you protect your organization. And another really important thing is to look at insurance issues. People don't realize that you can get insurance for responding in disasters that will protect you. One of the things that we talked about the other day, Melissa, was how important it was that animals first went into, let's say, government hands before they went into, I'll call it volunteer hands or, or a humane society kind of hands. Why does it matter that the government is the first stop? Yes. As a lawyer, I encourage all organizations, including HSUS, to work through a state or, or a county, or in other words, with the government. And the reason why you do that is that it is much harder for to be sued if you're working under the authority of whether it be the state or the county. So you need ahead of time to get agreements, and that means you have to outreach to your local community emergency managers and get contracts with them so that you're protected in a disaster. I'd like you to share with us a couple of the experiences you had on the ground in Louisiana at Lamar Dixon after Katrina. Sure. Um, in particular, one of the, the best parts of dealing with disaster response is the reunion piece, and that makes it all worth it. Um, in particular, I can remember many times, in particular one, where weeks and weeks had gone by and pretty much everyone had given up the hope of ever finding another animal alive. And yet, still, literally four weeks after the disaster had struck, 110 degrees outside, an animal came in barely alive, and it was just extremely rewarding because we, we were able to reunite it with their owner. And that well, makes it, it all worth it because... Melissa, if I understand every- the story, there was a dog that had been chained for entire two weeks without any known food or water, and that's the dog that came in. Exactly. We even found pets that were literally put in carriers that were just left behind in people's houses that would come that would come in after weeks of sitting in kennels, and it was an incredible experience. So, was it surprising to all of you that these animals made it? Yes, and one of the things that really I want to tell you know lawyers out there when I was talking about being prepared is that. You need to make sure that your client, wherever you're going to set up your temporary shelter, and ours was at something called Lamar Dixon in Louisiana, that you have an agreement with that contractor who owns that piece of property. I spent an enormous amount of time negotiating after we were ready there for a lease agreement to be able to keep the animals on that facility, and that's something that's very important to do. Was there also an experience that moved you with regard to a lady from Orleans Parish? Yes, I... Most of the time I was there, I was actually at our physical location um, helping to manage the entire process, but there was a couple days where I was actually allowed to go into the field, and that means actually going into Orleans Parish and actually helping with some of the rescue situations. And in particular, on one day I was out there, there was um, a dog that was locked in the person's house for, it had to have been at least three weeks, and we, were able, we literally had to break in the house and rescue 
the animal. And fortunately, after a lot of work, the animal was saved. And that's that's what it's all about. And she came and, I, and found her dog, right? Yes, she did. And what was that there were like? actually a lot of reunions. Well, you were telling me the other day how she was sobbing in your arms, Melissa. <laughs> yes, yes, she was. Um, and that's what makes it all worth it. Okay. One of the other things we discussed was the difficulty of people who were out in the boats wanting to save animals inside houses. If if somebody hears a dog crying, uh, can they just go in the house? And if they do, what risks are they taking? No, they can't. And that is another reason why you have to work um, very carefully out some of the details beforehand. Because legally, you cannot just break into someone's house because you see an animal in there and rescue him. So if you have an agreement beforehand... Uh, regarding what exactly your authority is with local law enforcement or with your county, then you may be granted permission to do that. But in general, you cannot go ahead and break into someone's house, and you can expose yourself to trespass issues and other problems. What are some of the other legal issues that impact people who are volunteers that as a volunteer they might not think of? Yeah, I think... People think, if you're a volunteer, they think, oh, I'm doing a good thing, no one's going, you know, I'm not going to get in any legal trouble, and that's really not true. There are laws, for example, the Good Samaritan Act, but they, people just assume that these laws um, protect them, and they do not always pr- protect people. In other words, if you were to collect, the Good Samaritan law does not apply if you were to receive any money from, a, from another group for participating in a disaster. So if I paid your way to go and help in a disaster, Barbara, you may not be covered under the Good Samaritan Act. So there's lots of different provisions that you really need to know before you're going to get into a disaster situation. So it's all about preparedness and training. In addition to, let's say, the volunteer on the ground, let's say somebody started up a little group and and that group went to respond to a disaster. So there's some kind of loosely formed um, volunteer group. What are some of the things that these volunteer groups might need to take into account before they respond to a disaster? Well, the number one thing is they really need to get um, some type of insurance. So... They need to find an insurance broker and be very, very honest of what they're going to be doing. Sometimes an individual can actually be covered by their homeowner's policy. There are usually water um, exclusions, so if you're going to be on a boat, you may not be covered by your homeowners. But once you form a group, usually your homeowner's insurance will not cover you, and that's why you'd need special insurance to cover you. Do organizations have something called memorandums of understanding? Yes, and... And I still consider them, and I think most lawyers would consider them contracts. And what that is, is those are contracts that you work out ahead of time with your local authorities for the Humane Society of the United States. It could mean also with different states and even with the Red Cross and with um, USDA. But they are contracts that allow that give you specific authority in a disaster situation. And if you surpass and do more than the authority you know, is granting you, then you can expose yourself to liability. And that's where certainly you want to have a lawyer review these contracts very carefully before they're signed. With regard to the Humane Society of the United States, it's my understanding that all the national humane groups have been working together on a very regular basis since Hurricane Katrina to share lessons learned and develop best practices. Is there anything about that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, um, it, it is extremely rewarding to be part of that group. And what that group is about is we have many different 
animal, national animal rescue organizations out there, and they weren't necessarily talking to each other. And I know Dick was talking about incident command, but for these groups, incident command is how they talk to each other. And we, it's a structure, and we work in a disaster. HSUS may help with the rescue situation, and then another group we can call in to do a sheltering. So it brings all of us together, and we can share our resources, supplies. I may have 100 crates. Someone else has 1,000. And we communicate regularly, and it's really, really been great. Could you give just a brief description of what the incident command system is? Yes, it's really just a set structure with its own terminology, but but there's a strict hierarchy, and everyone reports to a specific person, and it goes up a chain, so that no one does something that they're not authorized to do. And at the very top, of course, would be your incident commander, who's responsible for the overall piece. So it's a little bit like the Army, except for this is used for emergency management. Right. And all police departments and firehouses all use the same language, so it's universal. Where can lawyers who are interested in learning more go, Melissa? Well, two things. They can go to the Humane Society of the United States website, and they could even um, sign up to be a volunteer. But also another really good resource is to go to FEMA's website where there are actually courses online that people can take for no charge, introductory courses on disaster work, and in particular regarding animals. I want to thank Richard Friedman and Melissa Rubin for their pioneering work. They're an inspiration to all of us. Uh, We love you, and if you want to learn more about the ABA, please join us at www.abanet.org slash tips. Thanks for listening to this edition of Legal Tips. We hope you'll listen to the rest of this special series brought to you by the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section of the American Bar Association. Legal Tips is produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network.